we're going to have to make decisions. You know, we're going to have to make decisions that change uh, our happiness levels, right? And here, our happiness level tracks through consumption. But in this model, that's not the case. And the reason it's not the case is that, of course, you still get poorer. You still going to consume less, but you're not going to shift the balance of consumption today, consumption tomorrow, if you lose some impact. And the reason for that is that you're able to smooth out the shock or the change via the financial market by changing your financial assets. Okay. Um, so that, that that is a very important point to uh, internalize to understand this more. Now the other thing that's in this intercept is the uh, is the uh, initial wealth level A1. So if that changes again, your ratio is not going to shift of consumption today, consumption tomorrow. The absolute value you consume in both periods is going to drop if the wealth goes down, go up, the wealth goes up. But the ratio is not going to change. In particular, we care about the ratio. Okay. So just note that. All right. So we've got the budget constraints. We've got the um, utility function we want to maximize. So you know where I'm going already. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna see how to how to find the, the rule that tells us, okay, given these constraints, given that I want to maximize happiness, what do I choose? And that's where we're going. And this should be very, very boring because it, the procedure is gonna be exactly the same as it was uh, in the consumption leisure uh, example. So nothing's gonna change. Before I go there, I want to introduce the concept of inflation. Uh, which, for our purposes for now, is not going to matter too much. Uh, but as we as we go on, this is going to start to matter a lot. Okay. So, so I'm going to define inflation as the general change in prices from one period to the next. Now, you know, in a modeling sense, this is a very simple idea. Taking it to the data, different matter. Okay. So I want to just store the idea of this concept for now. We'll come back to it once we go and look at the US economy data. Because the natural question is, you know, here it's very simple. We're dealing with one consumption good with one price. In reality, we're dealing with many, 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 many consumption goods, many different prices. What, what is the idea of overall price level? It's very strange, right? very abstract. So for that reason, I just want to introduce it right now and leave it to the side. But anyway, this is how we're going to think of the inflation rate, right? The, Ratio of price today to price yesterday minus one. So this is the rate. Okay. Um, if you want, yeah, that's the rate. So take one off, you get the rate. Okay. So it's the percentage change uh, from prices uh, between two periods of time. And remember, two periods of time, we're thinking about quarters. Okay. Uh, I can introduce the idea of the nominal interest rate. And now it's related to inflation and the real interest rate. This is, just, this is just a concept. If you wanted to value the interest you're going to get in dollars as opposed to units of something you like, then we're going to call that the nominal interest rate as opposed to the real interest rate, which is valued in the units that you like consumption. They're related via inflation, like this. Um, so Expand that out, you get this. Now, historically, the real interest rate in the US is a number, is a positive number that's close to zero. The inflation rate is a positive number that's close to zero, particularly at the quarterly level. In fact, the quarterly, at the quarterly level, even more so. So you multiply two numbers that are very close to zero, 
you get a number that's even closer to zero. That's how the math works. So let's just, let's just forget about this multiplicative term. And let's just say that, um, that the real interest rate is approximately the nominal interest rate minus the inflation rate. Um, now remember, the real interest rate is what we care about, uh, but it can be a little hard to observe in the data. Uh, but the nominal interest rate is very easy to observe in the data. Uh, the inflation rate convinced you eventually quite easy to observe in the data. Okay. So the way we actually construct the real interest rate is via this difference of two nominal variables that are quite easy to just a little primer when we go to monetary policy, which we're not there yet, but we're going there eventually. Um, what the Fed does is move around this nominal interest rate, okay, to try to affect inflation under the assumption that inflation doesn't immediately respond to nominal interest rate change. And if you have, if you make that assumption, then real interest rate is going to change. And if real interest rate changes, well, then in our model. In our model, this slope is going to change. Okay. And if this slope is going to change, people are going to change their behavior. Uh, so I want to leave it to, I, I want to get today, by the end of the class, I want to understand what the change in behavior is going to be when this real interest rate goes up. Okay. Is that going to mean more consumption or is it going to be less? Right. That's what we want to get at today. All right. Um, now, I just want to introduce a little concept called time consistency. Not very important, but you know, if you're particularly, if you're if you're particularly tuned for what I'm doing here, you might ask the question. You said that I can make the decision today for what I'm going to do in my entire life. What if I actually come to the second period and then I want to change my mind? Right. Um, I want to rule out that that's going to happen. Okay. Now, there, there are examples in real life where that is not the case. Right? Gambling is a very, very good example of this. You go to the casino, you say, I want to, I'm going to you have a stop loss on yourself. I'm going to lose $100 and I'm calling it a day. You lose the $100 and then you keep playing. Right? So what you've done there is you've come in with one, having made one decision, you've been unable to commit yourself to that decision in the future. When you've got into the future, you've re-optimized because you've gone, okay, I don't care what I said in the past. That's in the past. I'm, I'm here now. I want to do what's, what I think is best now. Um, and if you've reached that decision, that best is to continue again. Um, so that's, a, that's an example of a problem that is time inconsistent. Uh, if, if, if our consumers were going to behave like that in this model, it would become very problematic. Right? Because I would have to then think about how everybody is going to re-optimize at every period. Um, fortunately, that's, that problem is not going to arise. Uh, and as a result, what we're going to get is a model where at time t, I don't necessarily have to, have to say how much am I going to consume for my whole life, but I can come up with a rule that I'm going to follow. For, for my whole life. When I get to each point, I assess the economic conditions, I plug them into my rule, whatever my rule spits out, I do. All 
Right? That, that's, that's the kind of solution we're going for here. Okay? But the rule is not going to change as you go to, as you go to each period. You're going to do that, you're going to follow that rule at all times. And if you don't do that, I'm not saying I'm not saying people don't change the rule that they set consumption by uh, through their life, but that would be a form of, of irrationality, and we've assumed all of that stuff away. And if you want to study that stuff, you know, go and take psychology or something like that. Um, economics is not very well placed to answer those questions. Okay, um, so let's solve this model. So the idea is I want to maximize my lifetime utility. Recall that we said lifetime utility was defined as the sum of period utilities, where period utility is derived by consuming the good that you bought in that period. So essentially this is the problem then of choosing how much you're going to consume in period one and how much you're going to consume in period two, uh, requiring positive levels of consumption in both periods. So you can't starve. You can't starve. Uh, you've got to consume in both periods. Of course, it's not very interesting if I say, okay, go ahead and do that, because this is unbounded upward. You're never satisfied. So the issue is, uh, given that I've constrained you, what's the best that you can do? And the constraint is given by the lifetime budget constraint. Um, notice that there are, that I've, set, I've put two variables as choice variables, but there are many more than that uh, in the model. So let's, let's just get on the same page about what assumptions are being made. So you notice R is not a choice variable, that's because we're a price taker. R is the price. You can think of it as the price of consumption today. Not to acquire the consumption, but to actually do it now as opposed to using that same money and putting it in the bank. So it's, a, it's very much an opportunity cost idea, right? You had an alternative. You didn't have to buy the consumption. You could have stuck it in the bank. By not doing that, you're foregoing something. You're foregoing interest returns. So all of a sudden, that real interest rate becomes the price of consumption today. If you're not comfortable with opportunity costs, that concept is going to be very strange to you. So don't get comfortable with these opportunity costs. This is how economists think of problems. Uh, so the fact that R is not a choice variable means R is being taken as given. Price taken. Uh, you'll notice income in period one, income in period two are not appearing as choice variables. Now, in reality, I can extend the model quite easily. I can bring in what we did last week, and then all of a sudden, the income will become a choice variable. Right? I can do that. But I just don't want to, because it doesn't add anything. Remember we said we have this trade-off between complexity and, and usability. I can add the complexity. It's easy to do. It, make, it just makes things a little more challenging. Don't want to think about it, because we already have the intuition down for what happened in the labor market last week. And I, I just want to focus on the new intuition being Okay. So these things are not choice variables kind of by abstraction. Okay. In reality, they are, and I can quite easily make them choice variables. Okay. But just skip that. The other thing that's not appearing as a choice variable is A1, okay. because that is, this is where you have to have a good handle on sunk costs as an economic concept, which I'm sure they taught you in your principles class. So what was the sunk cost concept that said, essentially, what you did in the past is in the past and you leave it there. And it doesn't affect your future decisions. All right? So 
This thing is the result of decisions that were made in the past. Or if you want to think of it a different way, you want to think of it as a life starts at period one. This is, the res this is just what you were born with. So whichever way you like, think of it that way. But the key thing is you can't change what the initial wealth is. That's the result of things in the past. To, to let that affect your decisions would be letting stunt costs affect your decisions, and that would be irrational. Don't do that, yes. Does this model come out Yes, yes it can. Yeah, so, so remember, we didn't put any real numerical restrictions on this thing, right? It can be positive number, if it's positive, um, you, you're born with wealth, if it's negative, you're born in debt. Okay? But uh, it's fine either way. Now, at, at a high level, like at a graduate level, we, we will talk about some restrictions here that will essentially rule out the case that we'll just borrow infinite amounts and buy infinite amounts, right? But this level, we don't really need to fixate on those things. Okay? The model works fine. All right, so essentially A1 is given, tells you that this is not a choice variable. It's not a choice variable. All right, I've put up the solution algorithm again just to remind us what we need to do to find the decision rule. Now, if you're under, now at this point, I left you with a question, what is the decision rule going to be with no math whatsoever? If you understood what was happening last week well, then that answer should be popping into your mind should have popped in as soon as I said it. You want to give it a bit of thought? You should have eventually got there, right? Um, so the answer will not be surprising in what we get. It's going to be of the same form, shall we say, as what we had last week in a completely different segment. But anyway, suppose we did 90 of that. This is our first time doing this. Let's just rehash what the solution algorithm is. So step one was identify choice variables. So you systematically go through, you look at every variable that's appearing there for each one in turn, you ask, is it a choice variable or is it not a choice variable? Okay? We've said C1 and C2 are the choice variables. Okay. Reduce the constraints down to one constraint. So we've done that already. We, we took the two period constraints, we subbed away the common term, which was A2, uh, the common choice variable, which was A2, collapsed it into one constraint, which was the lifetime budget. So we did that already. Set up a Lagrangian function where it's always of this form. So let's let's go ahead and do that. Um, so we have L equals U of C1 plus U of C2. Constant 
multiply it by the variable raised to the power of one, take a derivative of that thing, it just leaves the constant behind, which is lambda, negative lambda. C2, it's appearing over here. Take that derivative again, and it's appearing over here. And then the last one just gives you a constraint back. So there's our three derivatives. Exactly the same thing we did last time. Um, set each derivative equal to zero is the next step. So equal to zero, equal to zero, equal to zero. Last chance on, on signing in. Got it? Okay. Next step, substitute away the Lagrange multiplier lambda to yield the decision rule. So note that this equation implies that lambda equals U of CC1. I can take that and stick it into this equation. When I do that, I get Stated a different way, we have that. And that's our decision rule. This should not be surprising. This should be exactly what you expected to get. Why? Because once again, this is the same as saying negative MRS, sorry, equals slope. Example when we do the uh, um, 
questions in the, from the book next week, next Thursday, there'll be, there'll be a case where I'll give you the functional form. That'll be our work example. So take note, we don't truly stop here. If you have more information, you can continue. And you can get your consumption demand function in each period. Not particularly interested in consumption demand, though. I'm more interested in uh, saving supply. So ultimately, we're going we're gonna to rephrase this a little bit to get it into the form we're thinking about savings rather than, rather than consumption. Okay, okay. so that, that's all everything I just did. Now, this equation, this decision rule has a name right, in economics, and its name is Euler equation. Ooh. Now, you don't need to remember the name. Um, all you need to remember is what this equation is telling you and really what the system of equations is telling you, this one with the budget constraint. And when you solve them simultaneously, you implicitly get savings supply. Okay, that, that's, that's the key thing. That's why we've done this, to get savings supply. Okay. 
So C1 went up. Let's say now C1 goes up because, because of this, you'll say C1 goes up. So what happens to UC of C1 when C1 goes up? It goes, the marginal value. It goes down by diminishing utility, right? So by, do, by doing that, by acting on the fact that you had that your marginal benefit of consuming in period one was exceeding the marginal benefit of consuming in period two, you have pushed the marginal benefit down by diminishing returns. So as a result, this whole thing comes down. Right. So now we'll ask the question again. Uh, if this is still, if the sign is still like this, we're going to stay where we're going to do it again. It's going to push it down further. Let's say we've overshot. Right, let's say we've done it so much now that UC of C1 becomes less than Let's say we overshot, now we're, now we're here I ask you the question, do you want to add an additional unit of consumption in period 1? You're going to tell me? No, because the benefit's not exceeding the benefit You're better off doing this, the other option So by not adding the unit, what are you doing? You're taking that money you would have spent and you're sticking it in the bank. Is that going to change the real interest rate? No, because you're taking it as given. So it's going to go straight to your consumption in period two. You've got more money in this period. Not taking it to the period after you're dead. You're going to consume it. Right? So by taking it to period two, you this marginal utility, what have you done to it? You've decreased it. Don't get this diminishing returns business clear. Struggling with this diminishing returns concept. We add units. The increment, the incremental gain in happiness is reduced. You guys all, you guys want to think of everything in levels. You want to think of, you want to think of, oh, I added more, I'm happier. I'm not asking you that question. I'm asking you, you added more, what's happened to the incremental gain in happiness? It's gone down. You can see that it's pushing it to equality on both sides. So yes, eventually we are going to get it. Yeah. On both sides, it's being pushed to equality. Now, it, for all of you, if, if, if your brain will not allow you to understand a diminishing returns concept, it's going to be a long road in this class. Okay? Because ultimately, the diminishing returns concept is what forces you to eventually switch to something else. It's what keeps you not going on the same road all the time. You can keep adding, keep adding, keep adding, keep adding. You're getting happier, yes, every time. But eventually, you're getting more and more pushed to doing something else because the incremental gain you're, you're getting is less. Right? That, is, that is the key thing of how, of how our substitution occurs in these problems. So you've, you've got to accept that this the diminishing utility concept. If you want to do a little thought experiment to convince yourself of the, of the concept, ask yourself the question of what would happen if you just kept adding more and more and more actions to your, to your consumption in a particular day. Be fine. I like apples. I like them all the time, right? But eventually I want something else. Eventually I want something else. And that is what the concept of diminishing utility is. Diminishing marginal utility. Diminishing marginal. Alright, so we've found our decision rule. The decision rule was set these two equal to each other. 
We've done the thought experiment, convinced ourselves that the decision rule is ultimately where you go, because we've examined what happens if you're not there. Well, if you're not there, one side, this side is exceeding, or this side is exceeding. And in both cases, you're going to take decisions that are going to push you to equality between the two sides. So it's stable. It's definitely stable. Assuming the real interest rate doesn't change, of course. Of course. In reality, the real interest rate doesn't change. In reality, everyone can act this way. The real interest rate doesn't change. Wealth effect. Okay, notice. Uh, notice there is no A1 in this optimal policy directly. Okay? Which, and, and this, this is, is telling you the ratio telling you the ratio between C1 and C2. There's no A1 in here, so the ratios are not going to change. Okay? Uh, so wealth doesn't matter for the proportions that you choose C1 and C2. The levels, sure. But the ratio, no. And ultimately, I care about the ratio. Um, to, to come out of this class saying, you know, wealthier people consume more is not very interesting. Care about the ratio. Okay. Uh, let's suppose we wanted to do it a different way. Right? Let's suppose you didn't want to go through the rigmarole of combining the lifetime budget constraint. Yeah, combining the two constraints into the lifetime budget. Right? Let's just say that confused you. Right? Uh, don't want to go there. You just want to work with two constraints. I haven't really dealt with the situation yet, so I'm just going to modify the algorithm just to show you how if you wanted to do it like this, you could. And this also applies to the previous problem, right? If you, if you didn't want to go and substitute the time constraint to the budget constraint, you just want to work off having the two constraints, you could follow the modified algorithm I'm going to give you here. Okay? So solving the model sequentially says, um, I will consider my problem, that I want to maximize my lifetime utility, knowing that I face the constraint I do in period one, and then when I get to period two, I know the constraint I will face when I get to period two. So how do I resolve the problem? Of how much to consume uh, in each period. Well then the problem would look like this. Uh, I want to maximize my lifetime utility subject to the first constraint, which is period one, second constraint, which is period two, Uh, and A1 is given. Notice there's one additional variable showing up. It's, it's the variable we'd subbed away before. Now we have it. So A2 is still hanging around. Uh, so A2 is a choice variable. It's how much you, money you put in the bank at the end of period one. Or thought of another way, how much money you're going to start the next period with that you chose in period one. So three choice variables, C1, C2, and A2. And again, A2 can be positive or negative. You can go into debt if you, if you feel like it. Okay, so I need to, uh, need to modify the algorithm. So first step is still identify the choice variables. That doesn't change, that's never gonna change. It's always a choice. Second step, well, let's just cross that out, right? I said, I said uh, reduce the constraints down to one. I suppose you don't wanna do that. Uh, is it not workable? No, it's still working. The Lagrangian function just becomes something like this, okay? It becomes objective function plus 
Now you assign a, a different Lagrange multiplier to every constraint that you have, in our case two, and you, and you set it up like this. So you sum it up like this. Okay. Um, I think it's much easier to just collapse it down to one, but if you don't want to do that, you don't. function is objective function plus the Grange multiplier multiplied by first constraint. First constraint was A1 plus Y1 minus C1 minus A2 plus R. Plus second constraint, we'll call the second, we'll call the Grange multiplier and second constraint, we'll call it mu, Greek letter mu, call it whatever you like. But note, it's mu. It is not you. It is not you. It's mu. Please. Okay. Um, this is uh, A2 plus Y2 minus C2. Where's the A3? It's zero. You're not taking any money with you to, to your grave, and I'm not letting you die in debt. What's the reality? I'd love to. Not allowed this um, All right. Step four: add the add all the Lagrange multipliers to your set of choice variables. So now we have five choice variables: C1, C2, uh, A2, lambda mu. I'm really sensing a lot of people are starting to delve into the. I'm going to sit back and take this all in mode. Um, I just want to reiterate. You're not going to internalize things doing that. It's active work here. You've got to work with me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not performing, I, I am partially performing, but I'm not like performing for you to stare at, I'm performing for you to, to help you work. And so, yeah, get that changed. Which one? A2 is not a choice. It is a choice, it is a choice. Five choice variables. So C1, C2, A2, Lambda, Mu. Now, of course, these last two just give you back the constraint. They're not very interesting. Um, all right, so C1, it's appearing over here. U prime C1, C1's over there, minus Lambda. Same thing we had last time. C2, got Minus mu. A2, I've got uh, negative lambda 1 plus r plus mu. And then these two, just, just repeat the constraint. I need to write it out again. Okay. Alright. Uh, set each partial derivative equal to zero. Equal to zero. Do you mind if I just do that? Do you mind if I just do that? 
mind if I just do that? Yes. Okay. 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 We're not okay, tell me. We're not I'm happy okay. to go through it. Okay. Um, and then this one's suited for us. Okay. Uh, so step seven before was our substitute away the one Lagrange multiply. Now I've got two, so I want to substitute both away. Alright, so we'll do that sequentially. We'll do that sequentially. Uh, let's, take the, let's take this one and plug it into E. So you just, you just ask yourself, where do, I, where do I see Lagrange multiplies? I see one there and I see one here, so I can substitute there. Alternatively, I see one there, I see one there, I can substitute Either or, order doesn't matter, do it however you want. I'm just going to go here and E. So uh, we get UC of C1, 1 plus R, U. Okay, so now I have this thing and I have this thing. So I get UC C1, 1 plus R. And lo and behold, that is the same thing we have before, which is a relief. Yes. The bottom left that is mu, right? Nope. Mu. Bottom. Nope. Bottom left. This is u. So close. Nope. Bottom brackets. That's mu. Yes. There wouldn't be anything else, right? If, if, if it were you, let's just say hypothetically if it were you. Let's just ask the question. It, let's just ask the question. If it were you, what, what am I saying? I'm saying you can change your preferences. Right? I, I, I would be going into the problem and I'd be saying, okay, I faced this problem. Now, if I change my preferences a little bit, um, um, what do I do? And you can't do that, right? can't go and say, that's changing who you are, changing your preferences. Um, so, can't happen. It wouldn't make sense. What was that? <laughs> no. Put in. No. No. You are who you are. Now, you can delude yourself about who you are. Okay? Maybe you can learn about who you are. That's fine. But you can't change what you like. Uh, certainly not actively quoted before. I can maybe admit models where, you know, 10 years down the line, maybe you, you consider your preferences a bit changing for you. Or maybe you, now I'm sitting here and I'm going, okay, in 10 years, I might start, I think I'll start liking this, so I'll start playing now. I can do that. But I'm not going to admit a situation where quarter to quarter you're going around going, how do I change what I like? Sorry? What do you mean by diets? Okay, so, so this, is how I would, this is how I would represent that, that idea in a, in a model like this, right? Uh, you eat, you're happier. And, and I apologize for that. Um, you eat, you get happier. I'm just representing how this would look in a model like this. You eat, you get happier. You eat more, you get happier. But you're also getting fatter. The, fat, the, 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 the increase in fatness is. You can think of as your diminishing utility. Really? So eventually you get too fat, you realize I'm too fat, I need to substitute something else, so, so and you switch. That would be the idea. Right? Right. Um, and I've had moments like that in my life. Um, so, 
translator, right? You, you would not think of the I got you would not think of the I got fat and then all of a sudden my preferences changed. You would think of it as I, I took actions that got me fat, I knew what was gonna happen, I didn't care, and then went, and then I got there and I decided it's time to switch because the the equation told me so. Right? So that's that's Okay. Well that's We've got the same thing, Euler equation all over it. So that's a relief, mm -hmm. right? It says I can do it either way and make the same thing. Alright, I want to start thinking about savings supply. How am I doing time? I feel like I'm going through this too fast. Okay, I'm going to spend a while on this slide. Um, C1 star, and that would be your C2 star. So that's how much C1 you chose as a function of your income and, and real interest rate. 
here's your C2, again, a function of how much you chose. Now notice in this example, this is the this is the solution where I save in period one, and as a result in period two I get to consume more than my income because I saved a bit in period one. So this is the positive savings example. I'm going to call this the positive savings. savings S at time T. So S is going to be savings. And I'm going to define S to be uh, YT minus CT. The, the colon in front of equals means define to equal. I'm telling you this is what it is. So that's savings. Um, so you can see this is the positive savings in period one case. Now this is a two-period model. So two-period model means you have positive savings in one in one period. Necessarily, you have to have negative savings in the second period. Okay. But if I generalize this to more periods, where I said you know period three, four, five, six, seven, you can you can you can admit different ideas, right? Um, so this is the positive savings case in period. What were the positives? What were the negative? Where we settle is going to, you know, it's going to, we're going to get a numerical resolution to that. Right. So that would be the negative savings uh, in period one case. Notice if I have, if I have, if I'm borrowing in period one, then necessarily next period I need to repay the borrowing, and I do that with the difference between the income and the consumption. I repay the borrowing plus interest. And then the hand-to-mouth case would be where it just so happens that uh, 
your income points, your, which we call endowment point incidentally in economics, your endowment point is, is the tangent <coughs> between the indifference curve and the budget constraint. That would be your hands and mouth I won't draw it for the sake of not overdoing the graphs. But yes? Um, is that ST is equal to YT minus CT? Or? Yeah, with a semicolon. Okay. Which means fine. Defines who we You know, if I want to be even more general about it, I really should have, I really should allow negative values here. Because savings could be Okay, so I, I want to know what is this thing look like? Is it upward sloping? Is it downward sloping? Is there no particular pattern? Is it flat? That's what I want to know. So we're going to try and get there via via a thought experiment. Now at the moment I don't have I don't have savings in here. Right? I just have C's. So let's uh, let's put savings in here. 
So notice I could rewrite this, the first equation, I could just rewrite it as I could rearrange it like that. What did I do? I just took the y1 to the left hand side and I took the y2 to the left hand side. This is basic algebra. You need to be comfortable with this. They taught you this in, in high school, I can't guarantee. Um, Alright. So notice C1, Y1. What's that? That's the negative of saving. Y2, what's that? It's the negative of saving, period two. So what I have is negative S1 minus S2, one plus R. So let's do it in this equation first of all. So 
the real straight goes up. That means without anything else happening, the right hand side has gone up. So I need to bring this back into balance. I can either make the right hand side fall or I can make the left hand side go up, but I, I've got to do something to bring it back into balance. Alright, so if the real edge straight goes up on the right hand side, notice one way I could do this, if I could balance this back out, is I could increase my savings in period one. Now let's let's just map out and convince ourselves about what's going on here. If I increase my savings in period one, what's in the parentheses here, what's in the parentheses goes down goes down. If what's in the parentheses goes down, what happens to the marginal utility? It goes up by diminishing marginal utility again. Right? So this is, this is one way to resolve the problem. I could increase my savings in period one. Right? Um, so we're going to call that a uh, substitution effect. The substitution effect says that if R goes up, that implies that ST goes up. Alright? Why substitution effect? Well, because you're substituting away from consumption today towards consumption tomorrow. Because again, the price of consumption today has gone up if the real strike goes up. The opportunity cost of doing that consumption is higher because you are foregoing more rewards in period two. Oh, there's nothing about expectations here. You know, you know everything with certainty, so can't can't justify it on that. Um, I'm, we're just doing the thought experiment. Suppose really straight goes up. Uh, how do you respond? you say uh, to balance that equation. Okay. So that's the substitution effect. But what about what's going on in this equation? Okay, so in this equation, what is the effect of the real interest rate going up on, on what this is telling you? What it is telling you is that, the, is that if the real interest rate <coughs> goes up, the present value of your lifetime savings is now less. The present value of your lifetime savings is now less. Your wealth doesn't change though. But essentially your wealth on the right hand side has changed. It's gone down. So I need it to go back up. So my savings needs to go up in response. So this, from this equation we're getting what's called the wealth effect. And the wealth effect is saying that as R goes up, savings at time T goes up. So they're both telling us the same thing. So we don't have these contradictory effects like we had uh, in the consumption leisure problem. Now incidentally, if you're a finance inclined person, and you're interested in say, what's the, why does the, the why have growth stocks been hit so hard over the last two years while, while value stocks haven't. If, what do I mean by this concept? I mean, a growth stock is, say, some, say a stock that isn't 
necessarily profitable right now, uh, that you're investing in it because you're betting that in the future, potentially far off future, you're gonna have some pretty big profits coming in. Right? Tesla's a very good example of the growth stock. Um, Facebook's a growth stock, Netflix is a growth stock, Bitcoin is a growth stock, um, so on and so forth. Now these things got hammered in the last two years. Okay, and the real interest rate has been going up in the last two years. Okay. If you think of it in, in that, with that concept over there, instead of thinking about savings, you think about profits in the future. Essentially what's happening with that real interest rate going up is that the, future, the present value of those profits off in the future is getting hammered. And so you're valuing the company less today. Okay. As opposed to the company that's already profitable, you're, you're, less of the valuation is tied up in what's going on well off into the future. More of the valuation is tied up in what's happening right now. Of course, I recognized this in early 2021, so I got out of growth stocks very early, but uh, the market took a little longer to uh, come to Jesus. But it, it happens, it always happens. We'll talk about why later on. But my point is, I don't want you to think of this, you know, most people just think of this effect, substitution effect. It's very, it's obvious, it's clean, it's easy to understand. Less people think of, the, of this effect. But this effect matters um, in, a, in a lot of life, okay? And probably in countries that have relatively more wealth, it starts to matter a lot more because a lot more of people's uh, personal valuation is tied up in their wealth as opposed to their consumption, right? Um, so, you know, in a place like, in a place like California or New York, you know, these very wealthy places, um, places like Austin, these effects matter a lot for people's behavior. Places like Lubbock, not so much. People are relatively more hands-to-mouth. Yes? So if they're both the same, how are they different? Because R goes up and they're, they're, they're not. They're not different. They're not different. Just the, you just think of two different causes both pointing in the same direction. So uh, as a result, both of these are telling us that this curve should be upward sloping. So that's our uh, savings supply. Here, it doesn't matter how high you go in savings, your interest rate goes up, you're always going to be incentivized to save more. Now, are we, are we comfortable saying that that effect is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller as we go higher? Maybe. Maybe. It, depends, it depends which of these is relatively stronger, right? Um, if, if this effect is really strong, then I could get a situation where I go quite high with my savings, interest rate goes up, and I, I want to save even more, right? but, um, but if this effect is stronger, probably this effect is stronger than the most, then it's probably going to be context. So. No? Okay. Um, so, again, if we come back to just foreshadowing a bit where we're going with monetary policy, if we're going to eventually believe that the Fed can affect the real interest rate, by affecting the nominal interest rate, then the Fed hiking rates is going to increase savings. 
conversely going to decrease consumption. Conversely is going to be something that's pushing you towards economic contraction. I won't say recession, because it's not necessarily recession, but it's contraction. Some kind of contraction. Okay? Now there's a lot of political stuff tied up in this. Right? Politicians don't like contraction. Um, so there's a whole separate set of questions about why the Fed is set up the way it is. Um, devoid of political influence. So we're going to talk about that as well. But eventually, this is the first and foremost effect the Fed relies on when they're setting monetary policy decisions. Now why they do it, I haven't spoken about it. Maybe you already know, but if you don't, that's okay. We're going to talk about it. But this is the primary economic behavior that the Fed is trying to affect. That if rates go up, savings goes up. And if savings goes up, consumption doesn't move too much, or maybe even goes down. Okay. Of course, it's going to feed into income as well. It's not just going to feed into consumption. So, so that rainy day equation is quite um, informative, I think, uh, as well as the Euler equation. Um, okay, good, 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 good. All, all of these, everything I just said is summarized on these slides. The last thing I want to talk about is consumption smoothing. And Now from that Euler equation, I can actually say a little more about just qualitatively where the, the tangency point is going to be. Right? Is it going to be up here? Is it going to be down here? Is it going to be in the middle? I can actually say a little more here based on this equation. Okay? And how would you so I'm, I'm talking about this equation. So if I told you that R is positive, but R typically is also close to zero. Positive but close to zero, typically. If I told you that, uh, what, does that what does that equation imply about the ratio C1 to C2? That's also going to be fairly close to zero? The ratio? The two components close to each other. So the ratio is? Which means, numerically? Close to one. Close to one. I understood what you're trying to say. One at the end. It's good. So, fairly close to each other. Uh, so that means, typically, we will draw this in the middle. Now, for the other case, for the working case, I, I don't know. Okay, but for this one, when I draw it in the middle, I'm drawing it in the middle because that, that is pretty much the solution you're going to get always because of that equation. That equation implies it. Now, if you've got huge, huge real interest rate, positive or negative, 
But then we're not thinking like that anymore. You could get big, big movements in consumption. But within the real interest rate is close to zero, and the US historically it is quite close over a really long period of time. Um, we can expect to see consumption, this ratio usually being close to one. What does that imply about behavior? Consumption won't change that drastically, right? So that's something we want to store in our mind and look at when we come to the data. Uh, does consumption in the aggregate move around? Hints, hints, wink, wink, the answer is not felt. Okay, so that, that's something uh, that this model can explain quite well as a result. Now we call this behavior, we call this consumption smoothing. So that's called consumption smoothing. Uh, it's a behavior that comes out of this model quite in a quite pronounced way. Um, Now that is a marked, marked difference from what you had in the principles course. Right? In the principles course, they were telling you a story that like uh, people were just slaves to their income, right? But if income changed, your consumption just swings wildly. Well, but that doesn't accord with the data. In the data, we don't see consumption move around wildly. Uh, the only time it's really happened was uh, in, tw in 2020 Q1 to Q2. There was about a ten percent swing either way those those two quarters. That's by far the biggest quarterly change we've ever we've ever seen in the US. By far. And normally this thing changes within one percent either way. Um, so the data tells you consumption doesn't move around too much. The model tells you consumption shouldn't move around too much because of consumption's moving, because people making decisions like that. It's a marked difference one word. I want to bring you back to the policy question, right? So the, the, the policy question we said, suppose the Fed raises the real interest rate. That's going to induce savings to go up. And you're hearing this discussion out there in the media that the Fed might overdo it, the Fed's going to push us to recession, right? We've all heard that. We've all heard that. Okay. Maybe you're more politically inclined, you're blaming Biden or blaming someone else. But, but if you're informed, you know it's the Fed. Okay? So, how do we square all of this? Now, we've said that real interest rate goes up, savings goes up, but we never expect consumption to move around too much. So is it the case that monetary policy just doesn't have much of an effect? I mean, maybe. Right? The, Fed's, the Fed's hiked rates a hell of a lot in the last two years, and in terms of the economy keeps staring right through it. Keeps doing just fine. So maybe monetary policy just doesn't have much effect. Uh, in which case, we, we would say the elasticity of savings to the real interest rate is quite, it's quite low. That's one possible explanation we could, we could preach. Second explanation, though, could be that... I know I've said that this... Uh, assume this Y doesn't change, but in reality, this Y does change. That maybe most of the effect is coming through income as opposed to through consumption. And maybe if I start taking things like the durability of your consumption seriously, which eventually I'm going to do, maybe that's where the more pronounced effects are going to be. So you feel it in 
You feel it more in things like cars, houses, furniture sales than you would in, say, food, health, all right, right? Maybe when, maybe when I think about durability and how that ties in with income, maybe that's where the big effects are going to be. Okay, so that's where we're going. Um, ultimately, nothing, nothing stays stable in response to changes. I, I, only, I only do that just to bring up the intuition. But in, in, in reality, everything is going to move around. All this. But just note, when we eventually do start to move all these things around at once, these behaviours continue to hold. Right? This consumption smoothing desire is strong in this model. It's really strong. You can see it in that equation. Right. So, so that, that's, that is going to underlie a lot of what we do. I want to start to put some meat on the bones next class about what happens, not when the real interest rate changes, but what happens when this income changes. How does consumption change? Now, I mean, you have a predisposition coming out of your principles class, and probably just what you hear in the media, that, that income change must be we're going to get huge consumption change. But in the data, we just don't see it, right? Like moving come around, consumption just doesn't move around too much. So ultimately on Monday, on Tuesday rather, we're going to get an answer to that question. This is usually the thing people struggle to get their head around the most. Because it's just so counterintuitive, this, this logic. But if you really understand it, it makes perfect sense. So on Tuesday, you need to come with an open mind. More than any other class in the entire semester, on Tuesday you need to come with an open mind. Um, and then we should be okay. Uh, I think the syllabus says there's an assignment due next week. Um, obviously, we don't know what's whatever it was that caused the test to cancel. That's changed. So I, right now, you should tentatively expect that the assignment will be due not next Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. So I'm going to push it back probably five minutes. Tentatively, but you can guarantee it's not going to be due next week.
If you just okay. going to have to balance out, why can't we just balance it out that way? What? That what? So when he changed, like, he increased R, the interest rate? Yeah. I was wondering.